Awesome. Let's, let's look at Romans, as we've been doing. Uh, we're making good headway. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, it's, uh, it's been, uh, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. It's been good. Right? Hopefully, hopefully you've thought so as well. Uh, if you haven't been with us, um, look, we've been going section by section through Romans. And Paul's overarching thought as he goes through it, uh, churches, uh, chapters 1, two, 2, and 3, basically Paul convinces you, if you weren't already convinced, uh, that you're lost. You're, you're a sinner, that you fall short, that you're in need of God, uh, that you, yourself, uh, me, myself, uh, no one is good enough. No one can merit or earn uh, salvation or stand before, before a holy God and be found blameless. Uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are pretty comprehensive on that. Uh, and if you haven't read them, read them, and, and you'll see that. Pretty plain fact. Uh, he, he follows up with chapters, you know, again, kind of middle of 3 uh, into 4, and even here in 5, which we're going to finish up today, uh, with, uh, you know, just as firmly and plainly and uh, comprehensively as he made the case for us all being lost, uh, he uh, provides incredible assurance of the salvation if you have put your faith in Christ. If you've chosen to, to, to yield to him and look to him rather than yourself to be able to declare righteous before God. And, and it's been some pretty encouraging things. You know, last week we talked about kind of six affirmations that the beginning of five gives to us uh, with, with no commands in it, which is pretty good news. That's rare. Rare for you to come to church and not be told uh, something to do. There's none of that in the beginning of five. It's a pretty positive uh, message. And, and the chapter finishes off uh, here. But, but this passage that we're going to read today is very much uh, kind of a transitional passage. Uh, because in the next section that follows, chapter 6 and 7 and even into 8, uh, Paul is going to go as, uh, as, as uh, comprehensively as he has with those other two topics into the Christian life on how you're meant to live. Right? If we really understand we're lost and we really understand that we're saved, well, how does that change our day in and day out lives? You know? and, and so we'll, we'll cover those over the next few weeks uh, as, we, uh, as we lead up till Christmas. Amen? Amen. So let's read here uh, in, in chapter 5. Uh, and we'll look at a little bit of a mixture today. We'll talk a little bit about original sin because that's uh, uh, one of uh, the, the, the verses that Augustine, who was a guy who lived in the 4th century, he bases that doctrine of original sin out of, out of that text. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, and, and you know, some of maybe Augustine's errors with that. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a lot about grace and then we'll finish off with how that grace should impact our lives. Amen? That's where we're going. Let's read here, starting in verse 12. He's, Paul writes, he says, Therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act uh, 
resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Great passage here. We'll have a, have a prayer here and then we'll look at a few points. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you, you know, as always, for your word, God. We know that it, it shines like a light in this world, God. And uh, Father, we pray you help us, God. Help us to, to have uh, humble hearts before your word, Father. Help us to, to humbly accept it, God, as it is planted in our souls, Father. And we do pray that it grows, that it bears fruit, that it produces fruit that will last, uh, and fruit that brings you glory and honor and praise, Father. We pray you help us, God, to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as we realize it is you that works within us, God. Be with us at this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look, it's, it's a very, uh, you probably figured this out as you, as you heard me read it. Uh, it's very dense. Paul is saying a lot. He's compacting a lot in. Uh, if if uh, it's confusing to you, I do encourage you to go back, listen to, to the podcast, listen to some of the previous sermons, uh, because Paul, in many senses, is not saying anything new here, but he's recapping as he prepares to transition. All right, uh, but there are a couple verses in there that do do arrive. You know, you know, our passages often used and cited. Uh, when talking about the doctrine of original sin, and if you grew up in a Catholic church uh, or a Presbyterian, uh, many uh, uh, more orthodox uh, types of, of, of Christianity, uh, they have original sin as, as a foundational doctrine. Right? Uh, you know, and, and, and you can see here in this text, even verse 12, uh, you know, perhaps how you could glean it, right? Where it says there, verse 12, so then just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned. You know, that's the, the NIV's translation. Augustine, like I mentioned earlier, uh, who's a guy from the, the fourth century, he translates that death spread to all people in whom Adam, Adam, in whom, Adam being the whom, all sinned. All right? Uh, you know, <laughs> slight difference, but a big difference. All right? Uh, you know, and Augustine, again, talking about this, uh, just as Paul is this moment, uh, if you don't want to call it original sin, the first sin, uh, the, the moment where mankind, you know, as, you know, in, in terms of Adam and Eve as figureheads, chose to deviate from the Creator, right? Uh, again, Augustine takes that and says, look at that moment there with Adam and Eve. Uh, they, they sinned, and, and therefore every single person that comes after bears the guilt of Adam. Doesn't matter what, what you know whether or not you sinned or not, uh, you, you, you're born with Adam's guilt, right? And of course, you see how doctrines like infant baptism follow very closely after that thought. Uh, and church historians debate which one came first, right? But the reality is they both probably came came about kind of simultaneously, right? Uh, and, and so Augustine's mistranslation of a pronoun basically caused a lot of confusion, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, but but the reality is, you know. Paul here is, is not talking about original sin. And, and, and here's, here's probably some of the main arguments of why, why he is not talking about original sin. Amen? You guys with me? Yeah. You know, as you can see, you know, it is most commentators, even, even Catholic at this point, 
you know, agree that, that, that Augustine's translation out of the Latin uh, into, you know, you know, using the Latin translations, which were not as reliable as the Greek translations, uh, produced that incorrect English translation down the road, right? Uh, you know, misunderstanding of Psalm 51.5, right? You don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 51.5, uh, David writes, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. All right? Maybe you heard that one before, right? Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, iniquity being another word for sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so, you know, again, people trying to, to bolster up uh, original sin will, will cite Psalm 51. And they'll say, look, here, here's evidence for it. Uh, again, the problem is the Psalms are prayers, okay? So that first off, it's, it's hyperbolic language. Uh, but, but even if you think literally about what David's saying there, he's saying, in sin he was conceived. If you read even the story of David, and it's kind of an interesting story, right? Uh, Samuel the prophet arrives uh, there at, at, at David's uh, uh, dad's house and, and asks for all the sons to show up, and, and the father lines up all the sons, except for... David, right? That guy doesn't even view David necessarily as sons. And, and a lot of uh, commentators say, well, the, maybe the reason is because maybe that's what Psalm 51 is actually talking about. Maybe David was born under, under kind of dubious occasion, right? There was kind of some, some, some questions about who his father was, right? If you follow me, right? And, and, and so that's what David's talking about. David's saying maybe that he was conceived outside of marriage, and that would explain why his dad treated him the way he treated him, because maybe he didn't actually even view David as a son, right? So it's probably a more likely translation, or more likely uh, uh, understanding or, 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 or uh, uh, meaning of, of that text. Amen? Another one is a little bit more complex, right? Uh, if you've ever studied church history, right? And here's a track kind of traction, this guy, uh, Pelagius. And that's, this is by Calvin's followers and read the fine print, but making fun of Pelagius. And Pelagius was a guy, he was a contemporary of Augustine, uh, and Pelagius, uh, you know, he, he was a, a, a famous preacher. He moved to Rome, and he saw how lax Christianity had become. Again, if you study church history, uh, Christianity was radically counterculture uh, until Constantine converts. And when Constantine converts in, in 312 uh, and makes Christianity the official Roman religion, all of a sudden it's popular to become Christian. Okay, and, and the church begins a 100-year, 200-year slide into becoming more and more lax because now it's actually, actually the popular thing to do. And it's not counterculture, it's widely accepted. Uh, and so the church begins to blend in with the world. And Pelagius comes into Rome, which at that point is the epicenter of, of uh, Christianity in that, that time period, and he sees how lax the church has become. And so he preaches hard about, hey, you, we need to live righteous lives. Yes, we've been saved by God's grace, uh, but you know what? That grace should have effect, right? Uh, and Augustine didn't like that. Augustine was a champion of, of, uh, of, of uh, the kind of the other end of the spectrum, right? If Pelagius is saying, hey, you need, to, you need to work this out or you're not saved. Augustine's on the other side saying, hey, we've been saved by grace. I don't need to do anything, right? Both ends of the spectrum. They have a big debate. Uh, Augustine wins, and Pelagius gets labeled a heretic and gets, you know, deported out into the middle of nowhere of North Africa, right? You know, but, but if you look back on church history, and, and this is true in church history, and if you look at your life as well, it's true in your life. A lot of times, we overreact, right? Anyone ever overreacted? Anyone ever, you know, all the married guys, you get in a fight with your wife, and then it, you know, it ends up in a way bigger thing, and, and you think, why, why do I overreact? And sometimes in, in conflict, we do that, right? 
uh, we, we find somebody on this end of the spectrum, and so we jump to the other side of the spectrum in, in uh, quest to bring them over, okay? Uh, and, and if you look at church history, there may be a sense of that, right? Pelagius was saying, hey, look, you can, you can actually, you have some control over how you live and whether or not you live a sinful life or a life that pleases God. Uh, Augustine jumped to the other extreme and said, you know what, it doesn't matter how you live, you were born sinful, okay? Pelagius, even if you read you know, his actual writings, he's not advocating that you can actually be uh, a righteous person independent of God's grace, right? Uh, you know, but he did believe we have to work out our salvation, right? Again, Augustine was on kind of the other extreme, right? Uh, but, but in overreacting, you know, Augustine crystallized this concept of original sin. Right? If that confuses you, you can talk to me afterwards. That's a lesser, lesser of the points, right? And the points become clearer here as we go, right? The other big problem with, with saying that Romans 5.12 is saying original sin is it makes the first three chapters of the entire book of Romans pointless. Right? You can't, we can, and this is, if you learn nothing from, from me over the years but this, uh, read the Bible. <laughs> read all of it. Don't get one verse texted to you on your phone, okay? Read it. Read it as it's written. Read it as a book, okay? Most of our problems and, and misunderstandings of Christianity arise because we cherry-pick one verse out of an entire book, okay? And if you read Romans 1, 2, and 3, uh, and then 4, 5, and 6, you see, look, Paul's not advocating that, that it doesn't matter whether you choose to sin or not. Uh, your, your, your lineage is, tra is traced down from Adam, and therefore you're a sinner, that would be like he wasted a lot of time in three chapters, okay? Uh, making a point that everyone chooses to sin. Whether, whether you were born religious and you had the law, you still chose to do what's wrong because you even judged those who you felt like were not as good as you. That's Romans 2, right? Uh, and Romans 1 addresses all those who, you know, never had the law uh, and said that there was no evidence for God, even though God says, look at the creation around you. That's sufficient evidence of the work of an invisible God that's clearly seen by what he's made, right? And so you're without excuse if you don't glorify God and don't worship him and don't follow him, even though you've never actually heard his decrees, Right? That makes sense. And and so you you know we'd have to overlook through you know roughly three chapters of material to arrive at that conclusion, right? And there's lots of other stories. And Genesis four seven is is a famous one, and I like it because it's immediately after the fall. Immediately after Adam and Eve have have, have turned from God and been driven from 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 the garden, uh, you know Cain and Abel come and they make sacrifices to God. Uh, God looks with favor on Abel's, but not on Cain's. And God says to Cain, uh, you know, well, basically, what's going on, man? Like some psychology, D-time, counseling. What, what's going on? What's troubling you in your heart? And then he gives Cain the piece of advice. If you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That's chapter 4. Chapter 3 is the fall. Okay, chapter 4, you have God himself there reasoning with Cain that, that Cain has the ability to make a choice. He has free will. He's not born sinful, but he does have a choice whether he rebels or whether he follows. Cain, of course, ignores God's advice, says, hey, Abel, let's go for a walk in the field, and he kills them. Okay? But, uh, you know, again, an example where God is reasoning with Cain, and God, from God's perspective in that story, it's clear that Cain has choice. Cain has free will. And that's one of the weaknesses of original sin is it removes free will. And it removes personal responsibility of our actions and our choices, uh, and it pins them on, on, on Adam. Okay? All right? Again, I don't, I don't think that's what, what Paul is talking about. 
Man, you guys with me? Uh, Ezekiel 18 is an even more uh, blunt uh, passage that talks about this idea, the soul who sins is the soul who dies. And Ezekiel runs through all the various ways this could happen. Uh, you can have a, a, a wicked dad, and he gives birth, you know, he doesn't give birth, but his wife gives birth to a son, and that son uh, lives a righteous life. Well, the wicked dad's guilt doesn't transfer to the, to the son. The soul who sins is the soul who dies. Right? Over and over and over in Ezekiel 18, that phrase is repeated. Right? As God is trying to tell the Israelites, look, it's not, it's not, it's not arrived at genetically, guys. It's not passed down through your birthright, whether you're righteous or whether you're wicked. Right? You have a choice. Right? You have a choice. Now, all that doesn't mean you're not all sinful. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sinful. Right? Paul unpacks the reality that what we do with that choice, what we do with that freedom, is we turn from God. Every one of us. All right? And what he's doing here in, in this chapter is essentially this. Right? Uh, and there's Adam with his ripped abs. Right? How far we've fallen, right? <laughs> How far I've fallen, right? You know, he, he's, he's putting Adam and Jesus before us as, as, uh, as two figureheads. Right? In our individualism as, as Westerners, uh, we don't like this concept, but for, for most of the rest of the world, this is an okay concept. Right? Uh, to, to look, you've you got two categories here. Not a third. You've got two. Who are you, you going to be with? Right? And you look at the effect these two have had on the, on, on the world. Right? Through Adam's disobedience, and, and the analogy I often use is, is, is Adam and Eve in the garden, they opened the door. And sin entered the world. And one of the consequences immediately after that moment is that they're cut off from the tree of life and therefore they're now mortal. Right? There's some interesting thoughts in that. Like, okay, so were they created mortal because they had to eat from the tree of life to stay alive? Right? But the idea was that their rebellion, their, their choosing to, to follow self rather than God, uh, led them down a path to be cut off from the tree of life and therefore death enters. Everyone since then is cut off from the tree of, uh, tree of life and so therefore death reigns. Right? Uh, all sin, right? Uh, that, that all sinning is, is that we follow in the pattern of Adam, right? It's not Adam's guilt, it, it's, it's, it's our guilt, right? Romans 5 verse 12 uses the same exact, exact phrase that's found there in Romans 3.23, for all sinned, right? We all sin, right? And what do we all end up? We all end up condemned. And as a result, death continues to reign, right? That, that's, that was Adam's moment ripple effects continue to be felt why is the world the way it is well because of adam but you know what also because of me the reality is each one of us if we, were, if we were there in that garden we would have done the same thing we would have made the same choices right and that's essentially what paul's argument is but paul here is saying look he begins this comparison right and if you notice this and if you read the the, the passage a couple more times you begin to notice paul paul begins to to compare the two right uh, you know, that, that just as the, the disobedience of one man, well, the, the righteous act of another man, right, has a profound effect. And, and it's, not, it's not increase in sin, it's, it's a gift. It's giving unmerited favor, that grace, right, that gift of righteousness, the justification, that legal standing before God, that, that we're declared not guilty, that comes through that one man, and as a result, if we put our faith in him, then we have eternal life. Right? And Paul begins to, to compare these two heads. And then in, in reality, as he begins to do it, you, you'll notice this. He's like, hold on, it's not even actually comparable. 
Not even comparable, right? You know, he, he looks at, at, at you know, and he, two times, he says, how much more? Oh, you, have, you have what Adam has done, and you have what Jesus has done, but, but how much more is the impact of Jesus? Right? How much more? Uh, verse 16, he flat out says, the gift of God cannot even be compared. And it's like the more Paul meditates on grace, and the more he meditates on, 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 on looking at these two and the impact they have on history, he's like, you know, the reality is, you know, Adam is nowhere near Jesus. Right? And Paul then, in, in, in 15, 17, and 20, uses double superlatives. Right? He, you know, uh, one superlative is not sufficient anymore. Paul is just, it's almost as if at the end of these three chapters, three, four, and five, uh, Paul is just overflowing with just joy and grat gratitude and thankfulness for the amount of grace God has poured out in our lives. Right? Verse 15, the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, it, it overflows. Verse 17, we receive God's abundant provision of grace. You know, verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased, or, or literally grace superabounded. Grace superabounded. Okay, so, so, so even, even though people weren't, you know, uh, transgressing, not when he uses, that's the kind of the middle section there in our text, he says, look, yeah, from, from Adam to Moses, sure, people weren't transgressing because they didn't have a law. They didn't have all the law, but that doesn't mean they weren't sinning. Paul covered that in Romans 2. Where he says, look, the reality is the law is written on our heart, and we all deviate from our conscience. Take five minutes, think about your past, especially when you're ages 12, 13, 14, 15, and you probably remember back then going against your conscience. That's what Paul's talking about. All right? But he says, look, even when God instituted the law, the reality is what the law did, it increased sin. Because now you became aware of all the ways, clearly, not just your conscience, though you did know, I'm not living up to my conscience, but now I read a book that says don't covet. And what does Paul say in Romans 7? As soon as I read don't covet, then what did I think about? I started thinking about coveting and all the ways I covet. You know, and that's the reality. That's what the, the, the law actually does. If we read it with a shred of humility, we read it and we think, oh gosh, I do all that. Yeah. I'm guilty of all that. And so Paul says, look, even as sin increased with the law, the reality is, is that grace increased all the more. And, 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 and if you have, if you've been with us in, in, as we've looked at three, four, and five, guys, if at this point you don't feel like that cup, you've got to go back and you've got to read it and read it again and read it again and read it again. Because God has, has, has screamed out to us in those texts how lucky we are. How blessed we are. How, how undeserving of God's grace we are, and yet God has done it. And how unmerited we are, and yet God continues to show it to us. You know, and Paul has just been laying it out more and more and more, but with an aim. Because there in, 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 the next, in the next verse, which again, no chapters back in Paul's day, you know, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If grace is so awesome, and if that's like, man, just makes me feel like I'm overflowing with just joy and gratitude to God, well, should I just sin more? And that's literally what Paul had been accused of. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 8, you know, he says, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And so some people there in Rome, in the church perhaps, were, were accusing Paul of, of a gospel message, of a train of thought and religion that uh, led to just uh, complete liberty. Do whatever you want to do. 
Because the more you sin, the reality is the more God's grace is poured out. And then, man, glory to God. How awesome is that? Right? And, and so Paul has made a huge case, literally three chapters of how amazing God's grace is. But now he's going to go and he's going to tell us how that grace should change our lives. All right? And what he says there in, in verses 1 and 2, which we, should we still go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. You know, little, little three, three words. By no means. In Paul's mind, that's like the strongest opposition you can make to that thought. If you look at those chapters and you look at all those blessings and those privileges that you have in Christ and the assurances we have in Christ and you think, let me just go do whatever I want to do, he is like, you have missed the point entirely. You've missed the point entirely. Right? That if we really believe this, our attitude should be that of, man, I'm dead to sin. I'm done with living that way anymore. Uh, you know, in, in chapter 6 is going to unpack this entirely. And even into 7 and into 8, you know, th this attitude of, of if we really believe everything that precedes, then, 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 then how we look at sin and how we look at ourselves should radically shift. You know, Tertullian, who was a, a, a second century church father, and we talked about this on our midweeks a little bit, he says, just as our Lord was crucified between two thieves, right? He says, so this great doctrine of justification is continually being crucified between two opposite heresies, right? He says, look, the gospel keeps together two truths, right? The first one is that God is holy, you know, so our sins require that we be punished, the gospel tells us that we're more sinful than we ever dared to believe. And if we forget this, this leads to a license for permissiveness, meaning we do whatever we want to do. And we take that grace, as Jude 1 tells us, and we make it a license for sin. All right? We say, hey, look, saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. All right? He says, look, it, it, you can't lose that fact, though. God is holy. All right? He says, the other truth that the gospel holds together is that God is gracious. So that in Christ our sins are dealt with. The gospel tells us you are more accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. To forget this leads to legalism and moralism. Okay? And, and so chapters 3, 4, and 5 have, have vanquished, hopefully from our hearts, a fair bit of that legalism and moralism. This idea of that all these standings, all these assurances, all these blessings we have in Christ, they come when we were powerless. Sinners that were ungodly and in fact God's enemies. And it was at that point that Christ died for. But here, in these next few chapters, guys, that we're going to get into the next few weeks, 6, 7, and 8, he, he's going after the other side. To think that, okay, that, that incredible grace, that amazing grace, that abundant grace, that that's a license to, to sin more? Paul's like, absolutely not. There is no way. You know, and as we, as we begin to shift into that section, you know, the, 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 the two things I encourage you to think about, right, is one is that last slide of, man, as we close out those sections, don't forget that incomparable grace. Don't forget that, that, that incredible privileged positions we have in Christ and all the blessings that come with it. Because that realization has to be the fuel for this attitude towards sin, which is sin, I'm dead to it. And I think as we go through these chapters, guys, we're going to be confronted with the reality that, that our attitude is not that of dying to sin. Our attitude is more like sin management. 
All right, let me, let me try to, you know, get some self-improvement and kind of, let me stop doing that or let me at least stop telling people that I'm doing that. Right? Or we have a vacation from sin. We think, oh, you know, you know what, I've had a good month, so, you know what, I'm going to indulge a little bit. And, you know, it's okay because I've had a good month. And you know what, I'll get back on track later. And we, we handle sin as if it's a vacation. Right? You know, sometimes we're there, you know, but most of the time we're not. But sometimes I go there, you know, and, and, and we get caught in these cycles that are anything other than what Paul is saying. Die to it. Be done with it. You know, one of my favorite, favorite writers from, from a long time ago is this guy John Owen. He was a Puritan writer uh, in the 16th century. And his most famous uh, phrase is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it would be killing you. That we need to have a brutal approach to sin in our own lives. Not in order to clean ourselves up for a holy God. No, but because a holy God has cleaned us up. If you've been given, man, this incredible standing, why would you go wallow in the mud? You know, and I don't remember who said it, some other famous guy from church history, but he said, you know, look, our problem is, is that we are too easily satisfied. We're too easily satisfied. We don't realize how good we have it in Christ, and we settle for these lesser things. We don't realize, man, how we've been washed and cleansed, and, and yet we just stain ourselves over and over and over. And if we really understand in grace, guys, the challenge for us in the coming weeks will be to be propelled to live a life that reflects that reality. If we really believe we're sons and daughters of the Most High God, why would we indulge in sin like the world around us? If we really believe that our home is heaven, why do we settle for the here and the now? If we really believe that our true life, Colossians 3, is hidden in Christ and now, why are we so consumed with the earthly things? We've got to see, guys, that grace should time and time again fuel us and drive us to become radically different people. And if it's not changing us, then the problem lies with us. Because God has done everything to present us blameless before God. Amen? Let's have a prayer and then we'll stand and sing one final song. Uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you for this, you know, this passage of scripture, God, that, that pushes us one more time with, with just how incomparable and, and amazing your grace is, God. And how, you know, even as we look at the world and the effects of, of sin on the world and how it's ravaged and, you know, claimed all, to understand that, that what your son has done is even more profoundly impactful. And God, we do pray that, that for each one of us in this room, God, that, it, that, that, that the work of your son, that it impacts our lives, God. Not just on, on one day a week, but day in and day out, God. God, we, we pray that, that, that the grace you have shown us, God, that it can truly teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That it can compel us to, to live self-controlled and upright uh, and, and holy lives as we wait for that moment when, when, when true reality is revealed when your son returns, God. We pray, God, you, you help us, God, to, to you know, avoid the many pitfalls of grace, Father. To not become legalists, to not become uh, uh, overly liberal, Father, but, but to walk the line that is narrow, God. And in it to find great joy in you, God. Again, be with us, God. May your spirit convict us and open up the eyes of our heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Let's all stand together and sing uh, one final song.